1: My good friend, Richard Hanania, I've gotten to know you over the last couple of years.
0: A few months ago, GOP presidential candidate and biotech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy talked about affirmative action on his podcast. Near the end of the episode, his guest, Richard Hanania, told a story about his time in law school at the University of Chicago, when two of his peers were discussing another student who'd failed the bar exam.
1: So it was something they were talking about. And they're like, oh, he's a white male. That's very strange. And they're like, oh, no, I heard he might be Hispanic. And their assumption was if he was a white male, he would have gone into University of Chicago Law School on merit. He wouldn't have failed the bar. Yeah. When then they said, oh, he's Hispanic. Oh. It sort of makes sense now. Okay, now I
0: understand. Richard Hanania is a conservative writer and academic, a fellow at the University of Texas. He's been published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and other places. The organization he runs, the Center for Study of Partisanship and Ideology, publishes studies that are frequently cited by right-wing activists, promoting ideas like negative stereotypes of people are accurate and homosexuality, liberalism, and mental illness are all strongly correlated. It's the kind of stuff that's steeped in bigotry, hiding behind the veneer of think tank respectability and cleaned up to be presentable to the masses. But reporting from the Huffington Post reveals that for years, Hanania explicitly wrote about his disdain for people of color under the name Richard Post. Stuff like expressing support for race science, advocating for the forced sterilization of low IQ people, which he argues are most often black and coming out against interracial relationships. And some of his biggest fans are familiar names in the tech industry. Mark Andreessen, the influential venture capitalist, has gone on Hanania's Think Tank's podcast three times. Two other prominent tech investors, David Sachs and Peter Thiel, wrote blurbs to promote Hanania's upcoming book, The Origins of Woke.
1: He is what passes for an intellectual amongst the white supremacist crowd.
0: That's Anil Dash, a technologist and writer, and the head of Glitch, a web-coding platform. He's worked in the tech industry for decades and was an advisor to President Obama's Office of Digital Strategy in 2012. He knows the ins and outs of almost every major player in the tech world, and he's seen neo-Nazi sentiments become more mainstream in the industry at the same time that Richard Hanania, a political scientist, not a technologist, was becoming more popular among tech leaders.
1: So he's somebody who's been ranting online for a long time uh, at various degrees of abstraction about the inferiority of non-white people. And what he did in recent years was polish it up in enough pseudo-intellectual trappings to have won over a lot of tech tycoons as his patrons, literally supporting him financially, but also appearing on his shows and uh, promoting his content wherever they can.
0: For Anil, the reveal that Richard Hanania and Richard Host are one and the same highlights something he's seen happening in the tech industry for years, an increase in the visibility of an affinity for white supremacy and alt-right politics, something that permeates from top to bottom.
1: I think the more unusual thing is that people who had been pretty moderate uh, have been radicalized and in a way that feels akin to, you know, I talked to so many people who feel like a family member suddenly got into QAnon or something. And, And then that's been the experience of talking to some people who were, you know, very prominent in the industry, very successful as venture capitalists or as entrepreneurs. And you sort of necessarily have a little bit of a moderating influence usually in being that because you have to be able to appeal to a lot of people in order to raise money and do those other things. And then suddenly that idea of there being a tempering effect uh, to that has gone away. They've sort of worked themselves and each other into a, a froth. And, and it's gotten to the point where it's like fairly extreme positions that are just sort of not part of polite society are kind of ordinarily uh, recited by a lot of people in that cohort. So today
0: on the show... The Richard Hanania scandal exposes ugly truths about the tech industry. What does that mean for the rest of us? I'm Celeste Headley, filling in for Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about tech, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. The tech industry has long been defined by being outside of the mainstream, the move fast and break things culture. And for a while, the general perception of the industry was that it was a force for good, bridging gaps between people and culture. Google's original guiding principle was don't be evil. Fast forward to now, That phrase was removed from Google's code of conduct years ago, and scandal after scandal has tainted public perception of the company and the entire industry. And amidst the tarnishing of brands, many of the big names in tech have also embraced the values of the populist right.
1: I mean, there's a lot of intersecting causes. It it is a space that made room for people who wanted to be outside the mainstream, in good and bad ways. And so, you know, I think there was this both sincere and opportunistic libertarianism that shaped the current tech industry. you know, I think there are people that were genuine about this as their policies, but also it's every single major libertarian movement in America has always sort of made space for uh, a lot of uh, you know racist thought and and movement and 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 you know people have different relationships with that within that movement. It's not mine to comment on, but you can sort of see that pattern over time. And so you know the the sort of tech libertarianism set the stage or made the space. To welcome in these folks. But then there was a a really clear, concerted effort. You know, if you look at, you know, Peter Thiel, sort of the most visible of these, but even, you know, Mark Andreessen, um, they had this combination of, they're they're smart people, and they recognize the social trends that are happening and whether it favors them or not. And if you are trying to build extractive systems, and they are, uh, who do you have to appeal to in order to keep your perch in that position of power, and so I think there's a very intentional strategy of appealing to, um, like any politician would, to a sense of grievance, to a sense of of being unjustly wronged,
0: and often that's throwing support behind far right ideologies. And worse, we see it now when Elon Musk is talking about birth rates, anti trans talking points, and colonizing Mars. But Anil also saw this happening more than a decade ago. When Mark Andreessen was tweeting his support for colonialism.
1: He said that anti-colonialism was the worst thing that ever happened in India, you know, and I and many others sort of pointed out, you know, in my case, I pointed out uh, I have family members who were killed under that imperial regime uh, who would be alive today if not for that, not, not ancient history, living history. My living parents, siblings are amongst that list. And, and, and so to endorse colonialism as a tycoon of industry, is to say if my plans for expansion of our economic opportunity include uh, causing the death of you or your family members, that's acceptable to me. And so, understandably, I mean, it's funny because he, not funny, but telling, (laughs) you know, he's a Facebook board member, and this was the one time he was chastened, like he was actually forced to apologize and do the thing. Facebook actually lost out on their bid to be uh, providing what they called free internet access in India, but it was really at the cost of uh theirs being the only service that you really got for free was was Facebook's uh, app and WhatsApp, which they also own. And they lost out on that policy initiative uh, really as a direct backlash to uh, Andreessen's comments. And I think the idea that there would be some kind of accountability and that people would call him out and that it would be effective at stopping him flipped a switch, which was, how am I not the one in control? How is it that one tweet can have an impact that I don't get to be the one to decide for billions of people that they are using our services. And so I think that accelerated I mean, that was an inflection point. There were many others like that, but that was one that was really clear because that's when he deleted his Twitter account and, uh, you know, became part of the professionally aggrieved class, right, of convincing himself that he was the martyr. You fast forward to, you know, whatever it was two years ago when everybody was talking about Clubhouse, that was the streaming audio or the audio chat app that uh, funded by his VC firm. They promoted it. The partners uh, and their and families were actually involved in promoting content in Clubhouse. And Andreessen would hang out in a chat room called How to Destroy the New York Times, um, which is about ending accountability and ending uh, critical journalism explicitly. That's the goal. That's why he funded Clubhouse, is to have a platform to do that thing. That's radical behavior. It's not normal behavior. You know, like I've been a CEO. I have raised tens of millions of dollars in funding. I have faced public criticism, some of it fair, some of it I didn't feel was fair. And you suck it up because that's why you get to be in the seat and make the big money or have the name out there in the world or whatever. And I don't have billions like he does, but, you know, that's the cost of doing business is, is you sort of accept uh, the good and the bad because you get to the chance to do these things. And they really worked each other up into a lather of they should not have to countenance criticism, especially valid criticism from anyone. And then the real catalyst, I think, is the rising labor movement of the last several years. They see it across industries, including tech. But, you know, you look at, you know, Chris Smalls organizing Amazon workers in Staten Island and it is directly connected to their idea of like we cannot allow there to be those people making those moves to organize in those places.
0: A defining characteristic of the right in the tech industry is the idea that they're somehow held to a different standard and thus can say or do whatever they want without consequence. And in order to keep that idea up, they make sure to prop up other like-minded thinkers whenever they can. People like Hanania.
1: And the thing is, they're not very secret about it. It's not like some secret group chat or whatever. Like, it would sort of openly say, you people have no right... To keep me from doing whatever I want to do all the time. With you know Hanania, the the really clear example is this week when he's unmasked, if you want to call it that. I mean, I think it's sort of like the very obvious thing turns out to be true. Like he is who we thought he was. But in any case, there's a there's a clearly a mass media moment of reck- reckoning with this visible person. Two key things. One part of the reason his profile had risen in recent months was Substack went all in on promoting him. And Substack is a media platform that is funded by Andreessen Horowitz and was designed just as Clubhouse was as part of their like, let's undermine mainstream media. Uh, so Substack goes out by funding all the like the most prominent anti-trans and those in, aligned with the intellectual interests of of you know the teals and, and Andreessens of the world. And they did a sort of special unprecedented promotion of a podcast for Hanania. They didn't have to do it. They went out of their way to do it. And they said, this is a voice everybody should be listening to. It's not like this is a level playing field. They put their thumb on the scale to say it's there. That's sort of a catalyst moment. It all comes to a head as you expect it would when you see somebody that's outed as an avowed white supremacist. And Musk responds by following the guy on Twitter or X. And so, again, like in the time when any right-thinking, decent person would say, my gosh, even if you were... Oh, I'm intellectually curious and I didn't know and Substack told me I should check him out and so I was following a guy and I didn't know. After this week, you sort of say, of course I'm not going to listen. This is a repugnant person. This is a person with these sort of vile, hateful views. Musk has the opposite. Like, I didn't follow him before, but I'm going to now. That says it all.
0: When we come back, what happens when these politics are baked into the platforms? I'm Celeste Headley and you're listening to What Next?,
2: Price and coverage match limited by state law.
0: In reading these things about Hanania um, and doing this research, you start down a rabbit hole of, of eugenics. I was stunned to find the number of people in the tech industry who are all in on the theory of scientific racism and eugenics.
1: They've been out about that for years, though. They, they, you know, there, There's a sort of complex—this was the birth of, you know, whether you want to call it the intellectual dark web. I think that was the moment there. They've sort of been radicalized, you know, uh, gradually as happens with these things. Where they started with, um, like, Slate Star Codex was a really big key central point for them to gather and sort of say, oh, "Look, well, we have to interrogate and question a lot of these assumptions." They they uh, were very actively courted by the neo reactionary movement. So, you know, you have things like Teal holding dinner parties with the founders of the movement and sort of you know people who have explicitly endorsed slavery, explicitly endorsed disenfranchising uh, uh, women and, and, and the people of any non-male gender uh, from have, being able to vote. I always resent because I sound like a crazy person by just merely accurately describing what they have publicly said. <laughs> you know, like I sound like a conspiracy theorist who's pinning up red strings on a corkboard by literally be like this is a thing they said out loud in public multiple times. And he's like, there's no way. And I'm like, I don't know what to tell you, but it's all out there. We have receipts for 10 years.
0: Yeah. you're, And then just for anybody who is listening, you're correct. I mean, I, I have just done all of this reading and followed the receipts and that these are things that they have said. I've listened to the interviews. I've read the blog posts and newsletters. That's correct.
1: They are way out there, and they have an explicit agenda of normalizing really radical, really hateful agendas. And I, I don't, you know, for me, it's like it's just a very simple thing. It's like I have to care about my kid's safety. I have to care about my friend's safety. I have to care about, uh, you know, basic moral values that y- we used to agree on. And that's the other thing, too, is because I knew these people 10 and 20 years ago, like the first blog that Mark Andreessen ever had, I set up. It was on a platform I helped build. So, like, I know that there was a point in which, at least from the public visible face, this was a reasonable person. And for them to embrace the, it's the sheer intellectual dishonesty, along with the hatred, like the fact that they're just like, they don't care that they're lying because it's an effective tool to get what they want. That stuff is, uh, I don't know, it really soured me on the traditional tech industry.
0: But what does that mean for the users, right? The, those who use their technology, those who use their product, um, those who have been warned about, say, dis, uh, prejudice and discrimination that's built into AI, um, things that are built into algorithms. What are we to make of this?
1: This is what the tech is for. The things they fund are meant to carry out their agenda. Let me give you a clear example. To the people who believe in this extremist, racist ideology, Elon Musk being willing to To lose tens of billions of dollars in value of his own money, presumably, in Twitter turning into X, is a principled person who puts his values ahead of the dollar. He is so committed to advancing this reactionary movement that he's willing to forego tens of billions of dollars of personal wealth in order to advance it. And what rational people see as the destruction of Twitter is rather the destruction of the ability for anybody to ever again make a Black Lives Matter hashtag or to make a Me Too hashtag. And that is because he's not a dumb person. Like the thing that, that, that a lot of progressives and, and reasonable people want to say, well, he's racist and evil, so he must be dumb. He's not a dumb person. Peter Thiel's not a dumb person. So if we assume they're smart people who understand how systems work and have virtually unlimited resources, then why would they choose to do this? Well, there must be a reason. And there is a reason. It's just one we don't like to confront.
0: Even more insidious is the fact that these tech moguls own huge companies with enormous influence. And wielding that kind of power over their employees creates a herd mentality within their workforces.
1: So if, for example, Facebook's board includes both Peter Thiel and Mark Andreessen, they don't have to give somebody an order to say what kind of content they want to promote on the newsfeed on Facebook. Everybody who works there knows this is who our bosses are. This is what we got to do because they're smart. Everybody's smart. Everybody's very reasonable. And so, like, you don't have to imagine. Like I said, I'm not have to be a conspiracy theorist that's pinning up some red strings on a cork board to connect the dots and whatever. You're like, oh, I'm a mid-level product manager at a company. I'd like to make a name for myself and make the share price go up. And I know the boss's boss has been on every podcast in the world saying we need to promote more voices that are calling for ethnic cleansing. Okay, message is received. That's what, a, that's what a person who has no moral context would do. And there are a cohort of people in the technology industry that have come up entirely consuming media owned and created by these people. Because they read uh, you know, the, the, the programming site Hacker News, which is owned by a venture capital firm, run by Paul Graham, who's one of these guys. They, they read blogs written explicitly by these guys. They consume, they were on Clubhouse, they're in a Discord chat with others that are sort of buying the stuff. They have a full... Wrap around media bubble. If they just read Substacks and and listen to the, the blog posts or you know watch read the blog posts from these folks, you can have what feels like an entire media diet shaped solely by this dialogue. And this is why they're trying to own the media outlets and the distribution like Twitter, alongside owning the platforms. And the fact that they can control more parts of society, right? The leverage of owning the distribution networks, the leverage of owning media outlets, the leverage of Owning the platforms is very, very different because we do have a lot of historical pre- precedent. If we go back hundred years ago, and we say you're reeling from coming out of a pandemic, you are reeling from uh, you know economic precarity and inequality at unprecedented levels, and you see the rise of again direct parallel virulent anti-Semitism, uh, and you have things like uh, the the you know the oil barons giving way to the the Henry Fords of the world. The labor crackdown of the Pinkertons. Ford's embrace of anti-Semitism, you know, to the point where he's pen pals with, with, you know, Hitler and IBM building the technology. Like, you know, the first person that ever asked me to do work for him was a neighbor of ours. Um, you know, I mean, technology work was a neighbor of ours. And he had a tattoo on his wrist. And I was a little kid and didn't know what it meant. And I asked him what it meant. And, you know, it was his concentration camp tattoo. And what people don't realize is those are database entries in an IBM database, right? This is what technology does to enable the rise of fascism and victimization around the world. And we have a direct precedent less than 100 years ago of how these technologies are used. And IBM's stance at the time was that they were neutral. And I don't say that lightly. I'm not saying we're there yet, but that is how you get there. And I would be surprised if the pattern doesn't play out in some ways in terms of if you have tycoons of industry At a moment when the world is reckoning with uh, massive social change, cultural change, along with recovering from things like economic destruction, inequality and pandemics, and you have rising military threats around the world, uh, you know, that is exactly where we were a century ago.
0: There are differences, though. I mean, because here you are in a position of power and influence and a man of color. Descended from a colonial past, and here I am, descended from a slave past, uh, and a female, and we are reaching a large audience who are going to hear us and possibly take action. I mean, there are differences.
1: Absolutely. I mean, this is why I got in. This is why I got into technology in the first place. Is it can also be that thing that gives people a voice, that can give people a platform, that can empower and lift voices that would not have otherwise had a platform and distribution. So I I, I still believe that it's, it's a yes. And it's not an either or I'm not saying, Oh, it's all doom and gloom, but you know, to know what you're to, to fight effectively, you have to know what you're fighting. Yeah. And, and so as long as we can name it and we can identify it and we can tell the truth. And, and that's the part that I just want to encourage people is like, if you feel this way, even if you don't have this fluency, like you don't have to have been in the industry and been, you know, like I've been in boardrooms with these guys, right? Like you yeah. don't have to be that, to have a, a sense, to have a little bit of, you know, just have a little bit of that, man, I don't feel right. You know, just have a little bit of that that feeling of of unease and discomfort. And maybe I'm paranoid. You're not paranoid. You're not crazy. And if you connect the dots and you arrive at the same conclusion, it is not because you're being irrational as much as they're going to want to try and convince you of that. It is because it is exactly what it appears to be.
0: Is the solution, does it have to be boycotts? Do people have to stop using their social media platforms in their tech
1: Well well I don't think so because it's different than before because um, the power differential is so extreme. Uh, boycotts are kind of ineffective like the, the networks are coercive like I don't want to be on Twitter but I have to be there to get some certain kinds of information. I don't want to be on like WhatsApp it's owned by Facebook and I don't want to be on that platform but it's the only way to connect around the world with people I love and I'm not going to forego that because of the misdeeds of the corporation. So we all have these coercive things. You might need it to get a job. You might need it to stay in touch with family, you, you know, whatever it is. So, so I think the, um, we, we effectively don't have boycott power. Uh, there is not a lunch counter to, 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 to protest. There's not a, a bus to, to, you know, sit in the front of. So I think there's a very a different mode of attack. I think the one thing I do keep talking about is organizing, you know, both as workers and as consumers, I think is really important. People need to just do movement building, old fashioned, old school. Like not, you don't have to invent anything. You don't need any new technology. You just need to sit down with your neighbors. You need to sit down with your community, and you need to organize. I think it's a one key part. I think a, a second part is regulation. We have the strongest FTC that we've had in in generations. You know, they are so fluent. They're not enabled. They're not supported. That's where consumer voice can rise up and say, like these people are fighting for us. They're pushing for. Good regulations, and you know it's happening here in the U.S. I mean, we've counted on the EU to do a lot of this lifting, but here in the U.S., Lena Khan is incredibly fluent at this stuff. You know, has has written chapter and verse as a as an academic, as you know, an expert to do this stuff, and so to be able to sort of say, like, we have your back, we're supporting you, because um, they are undermining great candidates for these roles. They are undermining great policy. Uh, coming out of there, so we can speak up and say we care about it. So, like, I am I am still a believer that regulation can work like we've seen it work. Nobody's using Internet Explorer anymore. That's because of good policy enforcement. You know, back in the 90s, was uh, Microsoft was a monopoly. They had a web browser that was 96% of the web, and now that web browser is dead. And then, you know, I wish there were a more healthy, competitive market of browsers, but it can happen. Like, things can change. And so, you know, we can imagine... um Uh, you know, pretty pretty exciting potential for, you know, the internet getting more exciting again. One of the things I'm most optimistic about is the internet's meant to be lots of small or medium-sized communities connected together. That's literally what it means, inter-networking, networking networking between different communities. And we're returning to that. And and what people experience is like, oh, how come there's not a new Twitter killer and I just want to use a different app instead of that one? And instead to say the way it was meant to be, there's supposed to be lots of interesting choices, a community that you hop between. And, And the way to think about it is the answer to saying, oh, McDonald's food is bad for our kids is not let's have another really big fast food chain take their place. The answer is to say, how do we make for there being no food deserts? How do we make for healthy food supply chains? How do we make local restaurants? How do we make there be a community that has its own recipes And how many of the apps you use every day are home-cooked meals made by somebody you love in a community that you're from. It can be that. It's happening again. And to not see that as complexity, nobody's like, oh my God, my restaurant, you know, there's too many good restaurants in my neighborhood, it's so complicated. People are like, I'm lucky. There's all these great local places that I can go and eat. And I don't have to go to McDonald's every day. I can go there sometimes, but it's a sometimes thing. And our social media diets and our technology diets could be the same thing, which is that, you know, everybody deserves every day to go to something on the internet that is made by somebody that loves them and cares about them, and not just by somebody who wants to extract from them.
0: Anil, thank you so much. Really appreciate it.
1: Appreciate you having me.
0: Anil Dash is a technologist, writer, and the head of Glitch. And that's it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell and Patrick Fort. Our show is edited by Jonathan Fisher. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. TBD is also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you're a fan of the show, I have a request for you. Become a Slate Plus member. Get all your lovely Slate podcasts with no ads. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. We'll be back next week with more episodes. I'm Celeste Headley filling in for Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks so much for listening.